0: Like my Facebook page at Brian McClanahan, and of course, subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast at Brian McClanahan. You can find all my social media buttons by going to my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B R I O N, McClanahan.com. At the top of the page, you'll find all of my social media buttons. While you're there, give me an email address and I will give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, and a free audiobook, read by yours truly, of the same title. You'll get some emails from me. It won't be oppressive but you will get some. You can support the Brian McClanahan Show by going to mclanahanacademy.com where it's always free to enroll. And when you do enroll, you get the best deals on forthcoming courses. I've got six for sale right now. So you want to get over there. You want to get those things. It's a great way to support the show. And it's also a great way to educate yourself. Um, A lot of great material on good, politically incorrect topics. So go out and get mclanahanacademy.com. Excuse me. Also, you can go to learn... TrueHistory.com. That's LearnTrue, T R U E, History.com. You can support the show that way. That is my affiliate link for Tom Woods Liberty Classroom. A lot of great instructors there Tom Woods, Kevin Goodsman, Brad Burzer, Jason Jewell, Bob Murphy, yours truly. So you got a lot of good people out there. Philosophy, history, economics. It's not just history. You've got more stuff. So Planahan Academy is history. This is something more. So go out and get Learn True History as well. And You can always get your Brian McClanahan Show gear by going to redbubble.com, but I have a better way to do it. Just go to brianmcclanahan.com. At the top of the page, you'll see a button that says shop. Click on that. It'll take you right to the store where you can get all your Brian McClanahan Show logo gear. And As always, you can support the show by going to brianmcclanahan.com forward slash support. You can throw a few pennies my way, help keep the lights on, help keep the podcasts going. Anything you donate is greatly appreciated. Okay, today is a listener-generated episode. And it comes directly from an email. And I like these things. I like it when people send me an email and I think, you know, it would be great. Instead of responding in a way where I type everything out and write it all back, I'll just go on to the, to the show, to the podcast. And I'll respond because then everyone gets the question and everyone gets the answer. I had in mind a couple of other ideas, but this came to me in an email a couple of days ago. And so I figured, uh, why not? I'll do this instead. But before I do that, I want to mention the passing of Aaron Wolf, who was the... Uh, uh, one of the editors at Chronicles Magazine. Uh, Aaron was far too young uh, when he died uh, on Easter Sunday, um, and he's going to be sorely missed in the paleoconservative community. But uh, a lot of people love to read Chronicle Ma- Chronicles Magazine who are not paleoconservative. Maybe they're libertarian. Uh, Chronicles, an American, uh, a magazine of American culture, is one of the best magazines on the market. And Aaron was certainly... Uh, part of that. Um, he was only, I understand, 45 years old and uh, leaves behind uh, a, a large family. So um, if you are someone who, who is a, a religious person, uh, you know, pray for Aaron and his family. Uh, they're going to need it. Uh, but um, it's a sad thing, and, and I intended to try to uh, uh, do a show uh, based on some Chronicles material. I will get to that. Uh, but today I wanted to answer this email um, from uh, from a listener, because uh, the, you are the people who drive the show, and uh, you're the ones that take the time to listen to my podcast and listen to what I have to say. Listen to my ramblings on a variety of topics, so um, I want to address this first. So let's get into this, uh, to this email, and uh, it's, uh, it's, the title is Questions About Hamilton and the Founding, and so there are three different questions. And so I'll answer these in detail because I think it's important. These are these are really uh, deep questions, and I think it's they're probably questions that a lot of people struggle with. Now I will say from the beginning I've answered a lot of these questions in various books um, that I've written, and uh, this particular individual has read my Hamilton book. So if you haven't read How Alexander Hamilton Screwed Up America, you need that one. Um, But a couple of these questions could have been answered. In, uh, at least the third question uh, could have been answered in either the Politically Incorrect Guide to the Founding Fathers or the Politically Incorrect Guide to Real American Heroes. The first question in my Founding Fathers Guide to the Constitution. Uh, the second question is um, also one that could be answered in uh, Founding Fathers Guide to the Constitution. And of course, all of these questions could also be answered through Academy.com, particularly my class on American Constitutions, which I get into the first and second question uh, quite a bit. Uh, the third question, I haven't, I haven't uh, gotten into as much, but I do have some forthcoming classes that will address this issue. So, McClanahan Academy is a great way to get answers to your questions. And, of course, you also have discussion threads there. You can shoot me a question there, too, that I, I will uh, answer. It might take me a, a couple of days or some time, but I will get to the questions. Um, that you do answer at Academy.com. So this is also a, a great way. If you send me something, I can I can respond this way. But I do want you to 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 uh, go out and take a look at those classes I have. I'm really proud of that American Constitution's course. It's 40 lectures, 40 lectures, and uh, I go through every element of American constitutionalism. I mean, you, I go from um, the origins of American constitutionalism to, uh, I talk about uh, the Articles of Confederation, I talk about the U.S. Constitution, the Confederate Constitution, I get into all the amendments. It really is a deep class. There's a lot to get into there. Um, so I'm, I'm really proud of that one. Uh, and I do have a couple of great forthcoming classes this year. I've, I've just released a class on Reconstruction, which is awesome. The class on the war, which is awesome, which was at the end of last year. So you want to get these classes. Now, uh, let's let's get into the questions. First, um, he says, uh, Federalist 84 contains uh, Plubius' objections to including a a Bill of Rights in the Constitution. I think I understand the argument. Enumerating rights, even when you say that the enumeration doesn't deny people any non-enumerated rights, might change how people think about what the government can do. Still, the argument rests on the fact that such an enumeration is unnecessary given that, quote, no power is given by which restrictions may be imposed. And people today certainly do not think in those terms at all. Given that we seem to be hanging onto our freedoms today only by the delicate thread of the argument that, quote, the Nth Amendment protects them, do you think those originally in favor of the Bill of Rights have ultimately been vindicated? The alternative, I suppose, is to argue that without ever having framed any rights this way in the first place, people really would have maintained the attitude described in Federalist 84. I just have trouble believing that's the case. So, this is a really deep question. Let's 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 break it down to several different parts. So, the first part is Hamilton in Federalist 84 says, "Look, putting a bill of rights in in, in the Constitution would be dangerous because what would happen?" And I'm gonna I'm gonna put this into you know, layman's terms. What would happen if you enumerate a bill of rights? If you say we've got the right to free speech, we've got the right to keep and bear arms, we've got the right to uh, against cruel and unusual punishment, et cetera, et cetera. You have these particular rights. Uh, what would happen? is that people would say, well, there's the only rights protected by the Constitution, and that all else is then granted to the government. You see. So, don't put a Bill of Rights in there, and people would say, well, only the powers that we've given the government are the only things they have, and they don't have any other powers. If you put the Bill of Rights, what you're doing is saying people are going to assume that these powers were already granted, and that now you say you can't do them. So you're flipping the entire point of a written constitution on its head by adding a Bill of Rights to the Constitution. You see, in the British model, you needed an enumerated Bill of Rights because in the British model, everything is assumed to be the power of the government, except these things. In the American model, only the things we tell you you have, only the powers we tell you you have are what you have, and everything else is reserved to the states or the people—that's what the Tenth Amendment says. The Tenth Amendment was just an expression of how Americans uh, thought about uh, the powers of government. So the argument was, well, if you do this, you're, about, you're basically flipping our entire system on its head. And Hamilton wasn't the only one that said this. Roger Sherman said this as well. There were the, the people who said, look, we don't need a Bill of Rights. This is the argument they said. And the other argument, of course, was. That the states already had bills of rights, and so why would you have another layer? We know that the general government can only do these things if they can't. If we say they can't do it, they can't do it. This is exactly how James Wilson sold the Constitution in the State House Yard Speech in October of 1787. So uh, we have a, a, a situation where you have two different views of American government now conflicting, already in the ratification period. Now, those that were arguing for Bill of Rights were saying, look, I understand this argument, but we all know what's going to happen. The general government will eventually assume that it has all these powers anyways. So we need to make sure that they that we codify the powers that it, it does not have. That we codify civil liberties. Because if we don't codify civil liberties, we're in trouble. Because eventually the government will abuse its power. I mean, this was this was the opponent's argument essentially boiled down to that. We know the government's going to abuse its powers. We know it's coming. We know the president's going to become an elected monarch. We know that the courts are going to go crazy. We know the Congress is going to abuse its power. So we need to ensure that there's some protection on that because we know it's going to happen. All governments essentially do this. And what you've done in this constitution is exactly that. Now, of course, the argument for the Constitution, the one we should follow, is at James Wilson's State House Yard speech where he said, look, all we have in the general government is what we've given it. Everything else is reserved to the states. In the states, the situation is the opposite. The states have all the powers, um, and so we need to understand that the states have all the powers and that uh, our, our state constitutions are different. In fact, you had, you had state constitutions that essentially established only the framework Right? You had, you had a, a certain type of legislature, but it didn't codify any powers whatsoever. The states had all the powers. And that you, they were essentially operating almost under the British model. The central government, though, was different because it only had the powers that were given, that were granted. All legislative powers herein granted shall be vested in the Congress of the United States. So those are the only powers it had. Now, the question is, have the, the proponents of a Bill of Rights been vindicated? Because everyone runs around saying, Well, I have a First Amendment right to free speech. Well, I have a Second Amendment right to keep and bear arms. Well, I have an Eighth Amendment right against cruel and unusual punishment. Well, I have a Fourth Amendment right to un- to protection against unreasonable searches and seizures. I have these Nth Amendment rights. So have the proponents of the Bill of Rights been vindicated? In a way, yes. And in a way, no. You see, the problem in all this, and I get into this in, uh, in my Hamilton book, in the last half of the book, is the 14th Amendment. Because you see, that's where that all came from. Incorporation created this climate where people started running around saying these things. I have this Nth Amendment right. Because through incorporation, everyone thinks that your rights are, are come from the top down. And uh, you ha- the, the amendments give you those rights. So it's, it's a different conception of government. It's something that's been forced into us through education and our view of government in American society. Not something that, I mean, I guess you could say it's been, we've been vindicated because this is how people think, but it wasn't always that way. It wasn't that way until we got the 14th Amendment, until we nationalized everything. So I think the, the question is that, uh, he says, the alternative, I suppose, is to argue that without ever having framed any of these rights, people would look at government differently. Um, I think that could be the case, but more importantly, if it wasn't for Reconstruction and the war, people might look at things differently, too. Reconstruction changed everything. It recreated America. It recreated how we think about uh, the powers of government. It recreated how we think about the the enumerated rights in the Constitution, and that was because of a distortion of the 14th Amendment, which didn't happen until the 20th century, but that was still a, a part of Reconstruction. Uh, we still had this process by which the United States is being reconstructed and recreated in America. And that certainly had a lot to do with the way people think about their Nth Amendment rights. What we've really done is lost real federalism. And people looking to their state constitutions. This is my whole think locally, act locally position. That's what we've lost in America. We've lost people looking to the town or city or county and then state governments first or the state constitutions first because you see every state constitution in the United States today has a Bill of Rights. Now a lot, all of them are different and I used to get into uh, discussions about this uh, with uh, with those who are proponents of the Second Amendment for example and they would say I have a Second Amendment right to keep and bear arms. Your first protection against that is of course your state constitution and I say that because generally these laws that are being passed to abridge uh, gun ownership or whatever, the, you know, whether it's uh, what firearms you can have, how you can hold them, how you can possess them, how, what you can, how you get them, those are state laws. Now, your state constitutions have protections for what we would call Second Amendment rights. The only one that doesn't, or there, there might be a couple, I know Iowa doesn't, for example, so the people in Iowa need to be getting on that state constitution. Now, the general government, the general government, if they pass a law that is abridging a Second Amendment right, well then, therefore, you have to look at the at the general government, and there's where the Second Amendment would help. But you see, the problem really is incorporation. When you start talking about my Ninth Amendment rights, what people are really looking at there are state laws, not federal laws. We've flipped the entire federal system on its head. It used to be we go from you know, a an inverted pyramid, right? You have the local, the state, all that is at the top, and you have a lot of that, and then it narrows to the center. But at the top is the the, the inverted pyramid. That part is the most powerful part of the government. The people of the states, and then they grant the powers to the then that goes down to the center. And that center had the least power. We we've created it the other way. Now we've gone to a French model, a unitary state, where everything's at the top, and then it kind of they they make all the decisions, and everybody at the bottom gets it. Right, but see, that's not that's not the American political order, the political system. It's not our legal or constitutional system as designed, and nothing has really changed. You see, this is what people don't understand. The Constitution hasn't changed. I well, it's been amended. This is true, but the Fourteenth Amendment didn't change the structure of it. The Fourteenth Amendment didn't say this is now a national constitution where the center makes all the decisions and the people of the states just have to live with it. That's not what it said. And it didn't even incorporate the Bill of Rights. Didn't do that either. In fact, the, the men who wrote it, and then, of course, the ratifiers, those who were involved in getting it through the Congress, said as much. Now, I know there were those, and this is where people say, well, wait, wait a second, wait a second. In the debates, there were people saying the, the Bill of Rights were already incorporated, and they were knocked down. They were said, no, that's not the case. And this isn't going to do that either. You see. I know John Bingham was certainly interested in that type of idea, but the, the 14th Amendment was supposed to ensure that something like the Civil Rights Act of 1866 could be enforced, which meant that people, former slaves, could own property and sue in court and sit on juries. I mean, this is what they were looking at. If it did all these other things, then uh, we had a real issue right away because all the, if, if, if it incorporated, then all that incorporation was getting violated from day one and incorporated the Bill of Rights against the states and that was being violated from day one once the amendment was ratified. And the Supreme Court pointed this out. So uh, the problem is that people, it's education. People look to the Nth Amendment as their salvation, but in reality, they should be looking at the states and local governments. So have the proponents of the Bill of Rights been vindicated? I guess in a way, uh, because of how we've inverted the American political system Um, I think the the argument against the Bill of Rights, if you're looking at it from a pure originalist standpoint, is a very strong argument. Roger Sherman and Hamilton and and James Wilson and the proponents of the document, I mean, this is what they were saying. Look, Hamilton was selling the Constitution in a way that he didn't believe it would be enforced. I mean, I'll I'll say this, Hamilton lied. But uh, when you look at James Wilson and you look at Roger Sherman, Roger Sherman more than Wilson. Wilson was a scoundrel. But Sherman uh, the Atlas was someone who you could believe and could trust. And Sherman's position was, hey, the Constitution only allows the general government to do certain things. And if we if if we say there's a Bill of Rights, even if we get the Ninth Amendment, which was, he was a firm proponent of. I mean, Roger Sherman in many ways is the father of the Ninth Amendment, which says, all right, I know we've listed these things, but we've got all these other rights too. Even if we don't list it doesn't mean you can abuse power. I mean, that was the whole point of the Ninth Amendment. Even if we don't list it, it doesn't mean that our perception of the Constitution has changed. The Ninth Amendment is essentially the originalist amendment, in that, what he's doing is trying to codify the interpretation of the proponents of the document, how they sold it to the states. If it doesn't say we can do it, we can't do it. That's the Ninth Amendment. The Tenth Amendment is saying, again, in a different way if it doesn't say we can do it, we can't do it. It's just ensuring, it's codifying that all those powers that aren't granted are reserved to the people of the states or the states. That the federal system has not changed. These are important arguments to get out there. I mean, we have to understand what those amendments do, did and why they're important. The ninth and 10th are the two most important amendments in the entire Bill of Rights. The 10th Amendment, the most important, Ninth, right next to it. So, um, that's a very strong question. And uh, the the... This particular uh, person that sent me this is a college student. Great questions. The the, uh, classes that have this student in it are are lucky. The teachers that have this student, lucky teachers, because these are very good, strong questions. Now, number two. That's a long question. Number two. Here we go. We also just read Marbury v. Madison, which, in my understanding, established the precedent of judicial review. It sounds like strict originalists say that it's not a power of the Supreme Court it's supposed to have. But I'm wondering what the alternative is if Congress passes a law that does violate the Constitution. Is Judicial Review different than the ability for a citizen to sue the government on constitutional grounds and potentially have the suit go to the Supreme Court? Even with Judicial Review, the judiciary itself has no power to enforce its decisions and will always rely on the executive for enforcement. Isn't that the same as if they were just to give their opinions without an official power of Judicial Review? So this is a big question, too, and it's something that I address in my American Constitutions class. And so I'm going to give you a a Cliff Notes version of what I get into there, because I spend a lot of time on this. And I I did spend time on this in the Hamilton book as well, and I do get into it in the Founding Fathers' Guide to the Constitution. But Marbury v. Madison did not establish judicial review. It was the first time the Supreme Court knocked down a federal law, but judicial review was actually established before that. In the case of Hilton v. United States, it was the first time the Supreme Court upheld a federal law. And Hamilton, of course, had his fingerprints all over that. He argued for the United States. It was a tax that he was arguing for. So the Supreme Court upheld a federal law, essentially establishing judici- judicial review there. But Marbury v. Madison was the first time the Supreme Court knocked down a federal law. Uh, now, this power, this is interesting because there were those in states that during ratification thought that the Supreme Court would have this power. They, in fact, argued it. Hey, we've got... To, uh, it, it, the Supreme Court is going to be the backstop. It's going to be the, the entity that decides if laws are constitutional or not. Because there, the, somehow we need a coercive power. This is what uh, Oliver Ellsworth said. We need a coercive power. He said it in Connecticut. And so to have this coercive power, something has to happen, it, and it'll be the judicial branch. They'll be the coercive power. We don't want to actually invade a state. <clears throat> Abraham Lincoln. We don't want to invade a state So what we're going to do is have the legal system get involved and we'll ensure that we settle disputes that way. We can't coerce a state in its sovereign capacity, but we can have a court uh, ruling that would uh, settle the issue. There's no coercion. You can't coerce a state in its sovereign capacity. But there were those from states that did not have judicial review that looked at it a little differently. Wait a second here. We don't. I don't think that's a good idea. I don't think the court should be involved in this. And the main argument came down to this. Could the states handle this individually? This is the Virginia position. This is Spencer Owen. This is the Richmond Junto. These are these guys out there saying, you know, we could do this without the Supreme Court because the, the states, through the Supremacy Clause, are bound to enforce decisions of the general government. And so they're actually using the Constitution... the the loose constructionists against themselves. They say, look, we've got the Supremacy Clause. We swear that we have to follow the Constitution, right? But if the law is unconstitutional, then the Supremacy Clause doesn't count. And, of course, we can declare that law unconstitutional in our state, essentially. So we could say that law is unconstitutional in Virginia, for example. uh, It doesn't necessarily apply to everywhere else. I mean, this is nullification, right? So the alternative is nullification, uh, what is the alternative if there's no judicial review? Nullification. The states decide what laws are constitutional or not. And another that says, well, that's... I remember there was a, a, a debate between uh, Tom Woods, and I think it was a Duke professor of law. That's in his, his voice. That's lawlessness. No, it's not. It's not lawlessness. It's originalism. Um, now, there were people like Nathaniel Macon that said, well, that's just silly. Nullification is silly. Uh, if, you, if you're if you going to do that, just secede. And just, I mean, just get out of the union. There's no reason of being in it. Uh, but the idea that unconstitutional laws were going to be laws. I mean, what happens if the Supreme Court decides a law is constitutional, even when it's not, and clearly not? We know this happens all the time. We just we, we've had it several times in the last few years. So we know it happens. Uh, so what is the recourse then? Well, the recourse, of course, are the states. The states have to get involved in this process. That the states according to the originalist interpretation, were the backstops. Now, I would say that judicial review, um, the power of the general government to perhaps p- to, to get involved in, in deciding if federal laws were unconstitutional isn't necessarily a bad thing. In fact, Patrick Henry said as much. He said, look, I hope that the federal courts will get involved and say that law is unconstitutional. I hope they will. So it's not necessarily a bad thing for, this, for the Supreme Court to decide on federal law. The issue, of course, is state law again. Can the federal government uh, decide on state laws? And John Marshall himself said that would not be the case while well, the Constitution was being ratified. And John Rutledge of, of South Carolina, when this issue of a, of a federal negative over state law was brought up, he said that alone ought to damn the Constitution. If there's going to be a federal negative over state law, this Constitution ought to be damned and never ratified. That was the key. You see, there was never supposed to be a federal negative on state law unless the state violated Article 1, Section 10, which there are very few powers that the states cannot do there. It's the things that are enumerated and granted to the general government. Those are the things the states can't do. But everything else is left to the states. So, I mean, take, for example legislation on marriage right states get to decide that that's a state issue so many of our social issues that everyone is so upset and up in arms over these are state issues and i know people Well, that's going to open the door to all kinds of bigots and racists and all kinds of things um not not in the 21st century i mean i just don't see it um so These are, and and we may not like that. We may not like that response. Well, I mean, this is, what what are we supposed to do? We had all these, we had evil out there. We had to get rid of evil. When you do that and you open that Pandora's box, you can't close it. Can't close that Pandora's box once you open it up. And so now the the people that are well-meaning people that said, well, we got to step in here. The federal government has to step in and do this. Uh, You've opened the Pandora's box and you reap what you sow which is everything under the sun, then every single issue is then going to be decided by the federal government. So, uh, the issue really, again, is federalism. Now, to the last point, um, even with judicial review, this the judiciary itself has no power. This is true, right? I mean, the executive has to enforce the decisions. This, the Supreme court can make a decision. The executive doesn't have to enforce it. There's nothing they can do about it. Really. Um, so uh, the Supreme Court can, make, can, rule, can have an opinion. This is what Jefferson said. Well, I mean, we've got opinions, but they're irrelevant if we don't enforce them. Right? So, I mean, that is an issue. Uh, but I get into how you could dismantle the, this, this entire federal court system and all the problems with that in, uh, in the American Constitution's class. I give some solutions to that. Uh, also in, in, the, um, in the Hamilton book or in my Hamilton class at uh, McClanahan Academy. So uh, take, those, take those as well. And then number three, how seriously do you think we should take these legends we hear about the founders? I know Washington's never telling a lie is probably BS. It is. I mean, that's Parson Weems, right? Uh, But Washington was a very honest man and that Lincoln was a tyrant and that all uh, this is kind of, uh, uh, of creepy in general. But there are some things like Washington resigning his commission or turning down the offer of kingship from the Continental Army that as far as I can tell are accurate. And if so, they make Washington an incredible champion of liberty. Am I falling victim to blind patriotism and hero worship, or was this generation really worthy of our admiration in a way some libertarians are unwilling to admit? So let me take that last question. Yes, they are worthy of our admiration. Look, the founding generation, as I said in my Politically Incorrect Guide to the Founding Fathers, is the greatest generation in American history. These people were supremely dedicated to lowercase r republicanism. There were exceptions. All these people had their problems, their foils, all these things. There were exceptions to all of this. But the fact is, these people were dedicated to republicanism. Washington was the indispensable man. Washington doesn't deserve our admiration. Now, Washington as president made mistakes. And I point them out in Nine Presidents Who Screwed Up America. First mistake, listening too much to Alexander Hamilton. Second mistake, his neutrality proclamation. Uh, third mistake, the Whiskey Rebellion, right? So we've got he's got mistakes as president. But otherwise, Washington was the exception to just about everyone else in the 18th century. He wasn't Frederick the Great. He could have marched in after winning the American War for Independence and become the American king. He could have become the American king when he was elected president, but he stepped down after two terms. He said, that's enough. Right, so Washington was safeguarding this very Republican idea of government. He resigned his commission. Not only that, he resigned every commission he had, every possibility of abuse of power, even his vestry position at his church. He resigned that. He wanted to go back to Mount Vernon and be a farmer. He wanted to be the American Cincinnati, which is why he was called that. Right, so Washington did deserve and does deserve. Our admiration, um, and I know there are there are libertarians who are out there. We can't we can't admire any of the founding generation. We certainly can. They all had problems. Look, they're men. I mean, you you can't when when you admire a man, you recognize that they have issues. There's no perfect man, but you can still admire them for who they are. Uh, And so I think that we run into an issue when we start just tearing down everything. That's what what the SJWs do, right? We can't like Washington because he was this, this, and this. You're just an SJW then at that point, social justice warrior. We can't like Jefferson because of this, this, and this. We can't like Madison because of this, this, and this. You're becoming a social justice warrior. Now, Lincoln, uh, I will say this about Lincoln. I mean, look, Lincoln was abusing power during the war, but I do believe that Lincoln... And and would Lincoln have been able to deal with Reconstruction better than Johnson? Potentially, potentially. But he still had the radicals to deal with in Congress, and I'm not so certain they were just going to back down and let, let Lincoln do whatever he wanted. But I think Lincoln was politically astute enough that he was going to try to form another party. They were going to get some type of moderate conservative party, and Reconstruction would have gone an entirely different direction. So that's the positive you can say about Lincoln. When the war is over, Lincoln probably would have been better... Um, in that regard, because he had a little more political capital, but uh, Johnson was look. Johnson was doing a good job in vetoing unconstitutional legislation. It's just the radicals were able to run over him because he didn't have the same type of political clout. So, um, the the question, the answer to your question is yes. We should admire the founding generation. We should admire that generation. They're the greatest generation. Contrary to what uh, Tom Brokaw says. I mean, Tom Brokaw, we're going to have to the uh, greatest generation World War II. Uh, Contrary to what Tom Brokaw says, the World War II generation was not the greatest generation. It was the founding generation. I mean, think about all their accomplishments. They win two wars. Uh, Because Madison's still president. Two wars against the British. Now, not everyone involved in the War of 1812, of course, was from the founding generation. But there are still leadership positions that were members of the founding generation. So, two wars against Great Britain. Two wars to secure American independence. Okay, They write 13 state constitutions, two constitutions for the United States of America. Um, so, I mean, amazing stuff there. And look, in, in terms of how they're, they're forming out a government, they're doing all these things. How can you say that that generation was not the greatest generation in America? And they're, and they're carefully trying to implement powers. If you look at the, the first argument that I gave you, the, the, the originalists, those who were saying the proponents of the document, they're, they're they're cognizant of the fact that, that there's going to be people that would say these, do, these documents are going to abuse power. And they're trying to say, no, that's not going to happen. We're, now, we can look at action and say that, well, I mean, in, in terms of action, uh, yeah, we had some real issues here uh, with abuse of power. But I think that overall, this generation is more worthy of our admiration than any other generation in American history. Um, so, and George Washington was the indispensable man. The, the praise heaped on George Washington was not... Fabricated. This guy was something else. He was cut from a different cloth. He really believed in republicanism. So I hope that answers all the questions. I mean, again, great questions. I love this stuff. Send me these questions. And so I can answer these things in a podcast episode because it's fun to do this. It's like I just sat down and had a student ask me three really deep questions in a classroom. So it's fun to answer it, do a podcast episode like this. So I hope you enjoyed this episode. I hope I answered all your questions. If you need, and the student that uh, sent these, of course, listens to the podcast. So if you want to follow up, go ahead. But uh, send me more questions. I love these things. And I'll see you next time on the Brian McClane.